This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. The ethics commissioner for Canada, the federal ethics commissioner, finally, and I say finally, it's been almost a year in the works, but finally came out with her report and determined that our prime minister had in fact breached conflict of interest rules with his trips, trips to the Aga Khan's island. Now we know about one, one was last Christmas or just around this time. That one became very public. I'm not even, I wasn't even aware of the other ones. Nonetheless, a federal ethics commissioner, Mary Dawson says that the prime minister violated the rules with that trip and two other trips the public apparently didn't know about. But I've got a lot of questions. Some about the prime minister's behavior, but more about the ethics commissioner and that office and what it's actually supposed to do, because this seems like a completely nothing thing. Helping me to maybe helping me. I'm hoping he's going to help me understand this. We're going to work through a bunch of stuff. Uh, Duff Goniker, co-founder of Democracy Watch and an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Democracy Watch is a nonpartisan political watchdog group. He joins me now. Duff, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. Any idea, can you explain why this took, first of all, why this took a year to come to this conclusion when it didn't seem like this was all that complicated a situation to have to work through? No, not at all. Uh, and it shouldn't have taken this long, that's for sure. Um, I really don't know. The ethics commissioner does very mysterious things. She's, <laughs> she's, issued, she's issued more than 200 uh, rulings where she just said there was nothing there but never, never provided the details so anyone could tell whether she was covering up wrongdoing. She's let 95% of people alleged to have violated the federal ethics rules off the hook in the last 10 years and some of them with clear violations. And I actually thought, based on that record, uh, that she was going to let Trudeau off. Democracy Watch is calling on the Auditor General to audit the last 10 years of the Ethics Commissioner. She's on her way out the door, but we're hoping the audit will still be done. Looking for what? Just to see whether she covered up past wrongdoing, why it took so long for her to be doing these things, to set a standard for the new Ethics Commissioner to meet. Because, you know, letting 95% of people off the hook... That's a very, that's a squeaky clean government, series of governments. Yes, and with, you know, there were clear violations. And the Auditor General audited the the whistleblower protection officer back in 2010, uh, a position called the Integrity Commissioner. And she had done the same kind of thing, um, just turned away uh, more than 200 complaints, said they were all invalid. And... um, and she was held accountable, that integrity commissioner. So we're hoping the ethics commissioner, even though she's on her way out the door, will also be held in- accountable by uh, the auditor general with an audit. And, uh, and thanks, thankfully, sh- she's going out with a bang, not a whimper, because she's been a lapdog for the last uh, 10 years. And she's going out with a bang with this correct ruling, finding Prime Minister Trudeau guilty of violating the ethics law for taking this gift of a trip from the Aga Khan. Okay, so am I being too cynical, though, when I start to look at different pieces that are involved in this? And you mentioned the fact that she's leaving. I think January 8th is her last day, so, you know, whatever. But this ruling comes out just after a series of by-elections that could have seriously, I would expect, have damaged the government if this ruling had come out before them, and comes out at a time when Parliament is not sitting, so the Prime Minister is not going to be hammered on this right before Christmas, day after day after day for for what's going on. It seems, and again, maybe I'm just being very cynical, it seems very convenient, though. She's done this consistently. Issued rulings at 5 p.m. on a Friday when she's finding someone guilty. I actually, I thought she was going to do what she's done several times in the past, which is 
create a loophole in the law that's not actually there and then say, oh, Trudeau's fine because of this loophole. And, and then she usually says, oh, but the loophole should be closed. And she's done that again and again. She's let dozens of cabinet ministers off the hook, and, and 100 MPs in the last 10 years have been let off the hook for clear violations because of her weak rulings. And when she has found the 5% of cases where she has found people guilty, uh, she's usually done it on a Friday afternoon, late in the day, well, but trying be- to kind of bury the news. So this is par for the course for her. I actually thought she was going to let Trudeau off the hook on Christmas Eve when no one, <laughs> no one at all would be paying attention. <laughs> yeah, that would have been. That, that's the kind of thing that she's done for the last ten years, and that's why her record needs to be. Uh, needs to be audited. Yeah, we're going to have a special breaking news bulletin in the middle of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to tell you that uh, he'd been off. But, okay, so we get this conclusion. So he's guilty. She finds him guilty. But then we are, that's followed by a declaration that even in spite of his guilt, there will be no penalty, no censure, no fine, no nothing. How does that work? Politicians write these rules for themselves. They write the rules concerning their ethics, transparency, waste prevention, and um, as a result, they write weak rules, and, and they choose lapdogs, like the ethics commissioner, the lobbying commissioner is another one, to enforce the rules, who, and they don't really enforce the rules. And then, you know, when the pressure is really on, as it was in this case, and you finally get a good ruling out of them, politicians have put no penalties in, in these rules. Is rules. it the same office, though, that gave Bill Morneau a $200 fine? Yes, yeah, so... The only penalty you can face for violating the federal ethics law is if you fail to uh, give accurate information to the ethics commissioner about what you own, and you fail to do that on time, because there's a deadline after you become a cabinet minister or a cabinet staff person or top government official. You have to disclose this stuff. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Apparently, Prime Minister Trudeau being caught violating the conflict of interest rules by the Federal Ethics Commissioner. Uh, he may have been guilty, but it doesn't really matter because nothing's going to happen. There's no penalty here. We're talking with Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. And Duff, if this office is so weak and so ineffective and so soft and so unable to do anything, why do we even have it? Uh, well, we just need to clean it up. That's the problem. And it's really hard to get politicians to increase their own accountability, mm. especially in the area of, of ethics and, and um, transparency, because they want to be able to do secret deals with lobbyists they favor behind closed doors. And if you have effective ethics rules and effective ethics watchdogs, and you have effective transparency rules and a transparency watchdog, it's pretty hard to do that. So you know, they're, they're all elected backed by certain people and businesses and interests and big business executives uh, and, or the unions on the side of the, of the NDP. Or, and um, they want to do favors for those people, and it's pretty hard to do them if you have to do it in the open and you're not allowed to take gifts from them and, and be in any kind of unethical relationship with them. So this is where we're at. We, we won an independent ethics commissioner. That took Democracy Watch 10 years to win. And uh, we have these rules in place um, that are still, unfortunately, loophole-filled and no penalties. Um, we need a more independent ethics commissioner. Uh, the prime minister has just ignored the law in choosing the next ethics commissioner, because, as you mentioned, uh, the current commissioner, Mary Dawson, is leaving January 8th. And he chose uh, the uh, Trudeau cabinet has chosen the new ethics commissioner through a secretive 
cabinet-controlled process and failed to consult with the opposition parties, which they're supposed to do, because this person enforces rules that apply to all MPs, including opposition MPs. And so they're all supposed to agree on someone who is nonpartisan and, and clearly will, will do the job uh, of holding everyone to account fairly and impartially. Democracy Watch is going to go to court over that uh, appointment process that, uh, because we think it was illegal, because they, they didn't uh, consult with the opposition parties. Uh, they did the same thing with the lobbying commissioner. Um, a secretive PMO cabinet-controlled process chose the new lobbying commissioner, who starts in the new year as well. And you know, so that those people are not as independent as they need to be. They're enforcing loophole-filled rules and no penalties for for violating the rules that they enforce. And so we just got to keep on pushing um, and trying to get politicians in these kind of crises situations and in response to these kind of scandals to finally close the loopholes, strengthen enforcement, and, and finally put in penalties for themselves. Your answer about the lobbyists and everything else was far better than the answer that I was thinking you might give, which was, we need an ethics commissioner so that when something happens that we are in trouble for on the floor on, on, on the, in the House of Commons, rather than answering the question, I can say I can't answer because I'm in the process of talking to the ethics commissioner, which is a wonderful escape from any kind of, you know, having to answer any questions. And if the ethics commissioner is never going to do anything, this is a perfect out. I can't answer because we're talking to the ethics commissioner. What's she doing? I don't know, but we're talking to the ethics commissioner. Yeah, and she has done that in past cases. People remember uh, Nigel Wright, Stephen Harper's uh, chief of staff when he was prime minister, and he got into some ethics trouble, not the whole thing with Senator Mike Duffy, but another thing. And the ethics commissioner said, oh, I'm looking at it, and then she dropped the investigation without telling anybody. (laughs) And it was only because a reporter kept after her that five months later after she had dropped it, she finally admitted that she had just abandoned the investigation. Amazing. And the whole time, of course, the, the Prime Minister and Nigel Wright were saying can't comment because it's before the Ethics Commission. So she has been used as a front. And we saw this with, with even with Justin Trudeau. When he was questioned about this early on when they had that one day a week when he was going to be in the House, he gave the answer over and over and over. I can't talk. I'm, co- I'm cooperating with the Ethics Commissioner. Yes. Which, which is just, as I say, it's a great deflecting tool. Yeah, okay. This law and the lobbying law, the ethics law and the lobbying law, both have to be re- reviewed by a, a committee of MPs next year, and hopefully they will close the loopholes, strengthen enforcement, and finally put in place penalties. Because, you know, right now, you have a, a better chance of getting caught parking your car illegally anywhere in Canada, and you will pay a higher fine for that than the uh, prime minister or cabinet minister has a chance of getting caught in violating the ethics law. And there's no fine for violating the ethics law. This is a key law that is one of the key laws for protecting our democracy, and uh, according to the Supreme Court of Canada. And it's a joke. It's a sad joke. And we finally need to clean it up and uh, make it really effective. Duff, I only have 30 seconds for the answer. And I apologize for that because I know it's going to take more, but I know you can do your best here. Because beyond just the political points that everyone might be scoring or keeping track of here, there is a part of this that does seem like it's really important. Even if people didn't think that part was, the report concluded that Justin Trudeau and the Aga Khan weren't really good friends. They hadn't seen each other really for 30 years. Yet his government, the liberal government, the federal liberals have given in 2016, gave $49 million to his foundation. This, th- there is a real stink around this beyond just the, oh, he shouldn't have been vacationing at his island. Very much so. That's why this is such a key law. It, it, it is the law that protects the public interest because it says politicians 
you can't take favors or have gifts coming from, to you from lobbyists or people who get government money through contracts or grants uh, because they have a private interest and they're trying to influence your decisions. So it's really key that this law be effectively upheld and uh, hopefully we'll get some changes to close some big loopholes. You know, he was saying the Aga Khan's a friend and therefore the, the gift is fine. The law actually does say that, but thankfully the ethics commissioner has taken into account the purpose of the law and said even gifts from friends, if they're lobbying you or getting government money in any way, that gift is illegal and you can't take it. And, sh- and thankfully she upheld that standard finally. For sure. Duff Conacher from Democracy Watch, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. People can see much more detail on democracywatch.ca. Go check it out. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. I would be willing to bet money that if a poll was done asking readers of newspapers, listeners of radio news, viewers of TV news, if you were to ask the people who are regular consumers of the news, what would you like, what kind of stories do you want? A significant portion of the answer would be, we would like uplifting, happy, feel-good stories that are going to just put a smile on our face and warm our hearts. That's what we want. The media is all about bad news. We want happy stories. People have tried to do this. People have tried to do this. But let me tell you something. In the Spectator newsroom, and I just came from there from my other job, there is a monitor up on the wall, and it's hooked into the computer, and it shows what people, what stories people at that very moment are looking at on the Internet through the Spectator's website, of course. Now, it's not a deep dive necessarily into the analytics. It is a snapshot, but it does reflect the stories that are currently being read and currently being observed by people wherever they are. And if there is one thing that is apparent as you walk by that board day after day after day, it's this. If there is a murder, that story will be up on that list of the top, say, 25 stories that are being followed. If, there, if someone's hit by a car, it'll be up there. If there's a sexual assault and it's written about, it'll be up there. If someone loses a leg to some horrible disease, it'll be up there. Most of the time, most of the time, a majority of the stories involve crime or some kind of other mayhem. And I got to tell you, especially the week before Christmas when I thought, oh, everyone this week will be thinking about happy thoughts and wanting to read about candy canes and poinsettias or I don't know what. Uh, No, 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 not the case. It's still murder and mayhem and whatever else. And I'm not exactly sure why. Well, one person who may have a theory, I don't know if he does or not, but we're going to ask him. Uh, Paul Burton is the editor in chief of the Hamilton Spectator. He joins you now. Paul, thanks for doing this. No trouble. Do you have any good theories about why it is that we say we want good news, but then when it comes to actually reading it, it seems we gravitate towards the alternative? Well, here's a cheery Christmas thought for you <laughs> and your listeners. Um, the reason is because um, they, they, in fact, are the, the exception to the rule. Um, in fact, uh, life is uh, pretty good for most of us. It's not perfect, of course, and a lot of people are struggling. But um, if you use the analogy of the airplane crash, right, we never report on all the many, many airplanes that land safely. We only... Uh, mention those that that crash. That's because uh, if they were all crashing and one or two were land, landing safely, we'd, we'd we'd report on those. And the opposite is true. And and that's the case, uh, you know, with uh, uh, car accidents or robberies or murders as well. Do you think though that most people 
uh, and I, I, I hope I'm not sounding patronizing. I'm not trying to, but do you think most people get that they're doing that? Do you think most, because I'm sure you get, well, let me ask you, how many times a week or a month or a day do you get someone writing or calling saying, you know, Mr. Burton, you really should have more happy news in your paper. It yes, must happen absolutely. occasionally. Yes, that's a, that's a common criticism of uh, the Hamilton Spectator and almost all newspapers. Editors hear that all the time. Um, but as you said, they tend to gravitate more towards uh, glass half-empty stories. And you say other places. You've worked other places. Your last stop before Hamilton years ago was in London. Is it the same there? Absolutely, yes. It would be the same anywhere, in, I, I expect, certainly anywhere in North America, but I expect the world to. People um, just gravitate towards uh, violence. And, and as I say, the, 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 the optimistic way of looking at that is that violence is uh, relatively rare in our society. And that and I was wondering if it was, and that's a great explanation. I was wondering if part of it might be the, and maybe it's the same thing, but when you drive by an accident on the highway, everybody slows down to look. That, it, that when something ridiculous or horrible or whatever happens and you see that headline, you can't help but take a look at it because it's just, you know, it, it's a show. Yeah. And it, and it's different, right? But if you, if you passed uh, six accidents on the highway, on the seventh one, you might say, enough of this already, let's get going. <laughs> <laughs> now, that said, you do get people who call in and write in and say, I want more happy news. You need to publish more happy news. Have you ever had anyone call in or write in and say, you need to have more crime? Well, not in so many words, no. So a, a good point. But a lot of people, uh, the people who phone us to tell us about news are usually telling us about something bad happening. They're not telling us about something happy, happy happening. When they do... Uh, we almost always write about it because happy stories for a journalist are as good as uh, unhappy or or uh, tragic stories. They, we just don't hear about them as often. Right. And of course, then di- different people um, might say, "Well, um, you know, we you know we we won our, our our tennis championship as a as a happy story, and it certainly would be, and we might have missed that." Yeah, the only time that those kind of stories don't become happy is uh, generally if it's a national event and the country that you grew up hating ends up winning something. We write a happy story about them winning. If you're, uh, We've had this before. I can tell you, I've had phone calls when Croatia has won in soccer. We get calls from Serbians and vice versa saying, why did you say nice things? Um, and not, they're not the only ones. I mean, it's uh, it happens. But have you ever... Are you, well, yeah. just so, Sorry, that's why sports is such a great uh, thing to report on. There's always a winner. There's always a loser. But are you surprised ever how consistent it is? Because, again, you walk by that board. I know you don't look at it every day all the time. It's a, As I say, it's a glance. It's a snapshot. But are you ever surprised? Does it ever catch you and you go, man, like so much of what people are actually interested in and wanting to dive into is the stuff that they say generally they don't like? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh uh, we're not surprised. First of all, we are surprised on occasion by some of it. It's just uh, the, the, the nature, and that's always been the way it is. But for most of it, we're not surprised at all. We we know, uh, you know, uh, editors in the 1920s and the 1950s have known exactly what kinds of stories to put on the front page. They've never changed, and what kinds of stories people have wanted to read. We are very rarely surprised for the fa- by, just for example, by 
you know, I'm going to use the example. I don't know if it's ac- actually true, but I would guess it would be that anything that the Kardashians do mm. seems to be for, for for reasons that I cannot explain. <laughs> None of us can. Interest. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Hamilton Spectator editor in chief. Paul Burton, about the idea of what we say we want to read, watch, listen to in the news, and what apparently are the research, the numbers would show we do want to. We say we want to read and watch happy news. We read and watch the stuff that is at the other end, the mayhem, the murder, the whatever else. And, Paul, the the perception, the belief, and a lot of people would say that this is absolutely true— is that that makes all your decisions then about what's going to be on the front page or what's going to make it into the paper. That if you know that crime and those kind of things are what people want, then you're obviously going to make decisions for your choices based on that. Is that true? Um, Well, uh, surprisingly, not necessarily. They do influence it, of course. But uh, in in print, in the daily newspaper or online, we... Uh, we actually uh, have various measurements. For example, if if a, a front page is all grim, we, we would we would remove one of the grim stories and add a happy story. We, we're also guided by what's important, whether or not people want to read it or not. We know that readers and sub- especially subscribers expect us to be uh, doing sort of important journalistic work and keeping tabs on on what may be important, but also might be. Uh, complex or not as easy, easy to read or just plain dull. So what about um, that What about that old line that is a standard of every single journalism movie that's ever been made? If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. You know, I, I don't disagree with it, but but it's it's actually not... If, 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 again, it's like it's like the sixth or seventh car accident. You, you start to go by it, right? People like to have a variety of news uh, again in the newspaper or on the front page or on the on the home page of a website we 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 can only read so much bad news and we can only read so much good news and we can only read so much sort of complex news it's uh it's important to have a balance everywhere one of the things i find really interesting and, and for the record um i don't in case anyone's wondering, I don't have a say in where things are going into the paper or what is. That's not my role. In case anyone knows, I work there at the paper as well. That is people way above me. I just write the stuff. But when it comes to putting this in, if you know that a lot of people are interested in this, why does the paper not show a little, honestly, less restraint? Because I know when there are photos that come out that have some gruesome images or when there are possible descriptions that could be included in a story that might fit exactly with what you're seeing as interest. If there's a court case and you could put in more details that may be uncomfortable, may cause a few people to lose their lunch, but a lot of people might be interested, why not jam that in and say, you know what, if you want it, here it is. Yeah, uh, uh, that's that's we're guided again by our subscribers uh, on that because a lot of subscribers want don't want us to present them, especially first thing in the morning, with um, gruesome details or inappropriate um, um, information that uh, you know we like to say a family newspaper might carry. So we're pretty careful, even now, and, and including on the web. Although uh, websites tend to be a little bit looser about that, but we're, we're, we're careful about again 
not offending um, our reader, our readers, and it's it's a tough balancing act to follow because, you know, some people just say, "Let me decide. Give me all the information." And indeed, journalists in general like to be like to to err on the side of transparency and give people um, exactly what uh, exactly what we know. But sometimes we don't do that. Is the is the story the 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 meaning of the story, the timing of the story? Important and the reason I ask, I remember a picture by Paul Watson, and most people maybe not don't don't know the name, maybe don't even remember the picture, but it was of a U.S. Marine. I think it was after Black Hawk Down in Mogadishu. Mogadishu, and he was being dragged through the streets by the people. He was deceased. It was his corpse. It was a really uncomfortable photo. And more often than not, you would say, ah, "I don't want to see that. I don't want to see an American person or a Canadian or whatever." Some papers ran that. Some didn't. Does the scope of the story have an impact on those decisions, whether you'll show something that would upset people? Uh, absolutely. If we think that we can uh, defend the photo in terms of um, sort of encouraging social change, change or indeed bringing uh, public attention to it, we we can, you know, I can defend it on those terms, right? For example, car accidents, right? A car accident might look to, to just be one of those things where people gawk at, but it, it reminds people to slow down too, and therefore we're we're doing some good. So if we think we can do something good, we will take chances. Another one that comes to mind right away is the picture of that dead child who washed up on the beach with the uh, with the immigrants, the Syrian immigrants, right. which had a huge impact, but angered a lot of people. Well, we didn't print that one, and that was my decision. And you know, I'm I, you know I still second guess myself about that because it was an important picture. We knew it was an important picture at the time, and we knew. But I, I just couldn't bear it. It was just so sad. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, other editors made different decisions. Well, and you know what? I, I'm sure every paper is different for sure. But we are sadly out of time. I'd like to keep talking about this. It's a fascinating topic, and I think a lot of people would be interested in the decisions that go into this. Maybe we'll do that one day. We'll come up with a bunch of your decisions and uh, <laughs> chat about them because it'll be interesting. <laughs> we got it to go now, though. Thank you for the time, Paul. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Paul Burton, Editor-in-Chief of the Hamilton Spectator. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Let's continue, though, for just a couple minutes with what we just finished with Paul Burton there. Because I want to hear from you. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. You heard his theory about why people choose or don't even realize they're choosing to read, to watch, to listen to stories that they say, because we hear this all the time, I don't want all that bad news. And yet all the numbers, all the research, all the evidence says, yes, you do. And I don't know that a lot of us want to admit that because we like to think, no, I would much rather have happy news. I'd much rather fill my brain with good news stuff. But we over and over and over again, go to those stories that aren't all good news. Why do you think that is? Why? What's your theory on why it is? And, and maybe your theory is, no, those numbers are wrong. We really do want more good news. And if we got more good news, we would just read more of it. The only reason we're reading the crime stuff is because it's there. Maybe that's what some people think. But let me give you another example. Because I have a feeling that I know what one of the big stories that people are going to be talking about following tomorrow, because this, this falls exactly into what we're describing right now. You may have heard already that there was a stabbing on Hamilton Mountain last night. 
Now, what makes this story... So there's a good news element to this, sort of. I mean, it's a stabbing. How good can it be? But there's a good news element to it, but there's also a crime element. That's going to make it kind of perfect, because now you can, if you want to read it, you can defend it, say, no, I liked the good news part of it, not the crime part. Regardless, this is a stab... Apparently, there were three people who were breaking into cars on the East Mountain, and some guy saw them, went up, tried to stop them from breaking into the cars, and they stabbed him. You get the good news and the bad news part, right? For the second time in three weeks in this city, we have someone who has decided to be a good Samaritan, has stepped in the way, not realizing, obviously not choosing to be stabbed or to be shot. No one's choosing that, but has gotten involved in something that had an element of risk and yet did it anyway. I got to be honest, I'm loving the fact that we seem to have those people in this city. That's a wonderful thing to know. Not every situation is going to have that, but it's wonderful to know, especially as we lead up to Christmas, that we have people in this city who will get involved to try to do the right thing. I don't know who this person is. I don't think a name has been released yet. I have no doubt that we're going to find out. Thankfully, best I can tell, last story that I've read, these injuries are not life-threatening. So unlike the last one with Yosef, uh, who did pass away, unfortunately, from those injuries when he was shot downtown. This is going to be someone that we're going to be able to hear from, hopefully, and to thank and to congratulate. This is a wonderful thing that we have people in this city that would do this kind of stuff. I, I've said this before. I really hope that if the time ever came that I came across something like this, I would really like to believe, not with the stabbing, not with the shooting part, I can leave that out, but I really would like to believe that I would step in to try and do the right thing. I like to believe I would. We don't know until it actually happens, but it's amazing to me that we have these people in our city. But this to me is going to be one of the big, big stories that gets read and talked about and watched and listened to a ton over the next few days because it fits in exactly with what the statistics say we want. We say we want wondrous stories about carolers going door to door singing carols and drinking eggnog. Eh. Maybe we do, but we don't really read that stuff. We'll find the stuff that has the, 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 the gritty side of our city and the downside of our city. I don't know why that is. I, Paul Burton had a, you know, a good theory, which probably is right, I guess. Probably is right. We are drawn to the stuff that is unusual and that we don't see all the time. That makes it unique. That makes it interesting to us. If you've got a good theory about it, Radley at 900CHML.com, I would love to hear your theory on this. Why, if you're willing to admit that you like that stuff, or at least like reading that stuff, why is it? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900CHML. We want to talk a little bit of sports with our friend, Bubba O'Neill. We're going to bring Bubba in with some special music, as we do every time. I'm feeling hungry tonight. My peas and Brussels sprouts And my favorite iPad beans My stomach's turning like a swirling storm inside Can't keep it in even if I try And now I don't know what to do Should I stay here or go to the loo? Cause I've got gas Needs to pass 
That's enough of that. What are we listening to? Uh, you know what? I, I put Ben in charge of coming up with entry music for you, and for special Christmas week, that's what he came up with. Let one go. <laughs> what do you think? Is that the new Bubba O'Neill entry music every week? I don't think so. I would have taken at least the regular version. <laughs> I had never even heard that one before. He says, I got something special. I said, all right, I trust you. That may be the last time I can trust him. But anyway, that was... Uh, I don't even know who sings that. Anyway, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. And by the way, that was not a um, a commentary that uh, Bubba is flatulent or anything. Uh, it's not, nothing like that at all. Just that was Ben's choice. He found that one, so I said, "Go for it, sir." How are you? I'm good, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas, music is killing me. <laughs> all right, let us move on to um, something slightly more serious, slightly more, uh, slightly less about uh, gas and those kind of things. Uh, this is the time when those people who have a ballot get to vote for who's going to go into Cooperstown, Baseball's Hall of Fame. And I, I think it's January 1st, maybe something like that, that they have to have submitted their ballots by. And what is interesting is that over the last number of years, a few of the players who have either been caught taking performance-enhancing substances or were accused or rumored to have taken performance-enhancing substances are climbing closer and closer to the threshold to actually be admitted as an inducted member of the Hall of Fame. That led to former player, now broadcaster, C.J. Nitkowski today to say this on Twitter. Here's his quote. Every Hall of Fame vote for a PED user is a clear message from those voters to Fred McGriff, you should have taken steroids. Basically, McGriff finished with 493 homers, 500 generally gets you into the Hall of Fame. Uh, the suggestion being if Fred McGriff had decided just to take a few steroids and bulk up a little bit, he might have hit 550, might have hit 600, and Bubba, it wouldn't have even have been a question. Is, uh, is Fred McGriff a moron in the current situation for not having taken drugs? I mean, okay, the first thing, <laughs> I'm, all I'm hearing is let it go in my ear Is it again. still playing? It's still playing. <laughs> okay, we'll we'll turn off that. Uh, I, I can't hear it, so. I, oh, relief! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back onto this. Is Fred McGriff an idiot for not having taken steroids? Ah. Since a lot of guys, apparently, if you do, well, we'll still put you in. Well, I mean, again, and this is an ale- this is alleged. Should he have taken, you know, PEDs or taken? Oh, no everything. one says he did. No one's no, he. You know, and, that, and that's I just have to I just have to start with that, right? Because we're talking about an era where other players, and I don't know. I mean, I know C.J. Nikowski is a you know a, you know a high end um, a commentator for the sport and has been employed by ESPN for some time. Um, I I mean, and, and I don't think any players would outly admit it, but there have been plenty of, I mean, at least players on television would admit it, but there have been lots of other players that have said at that period of time, Scott, up to 80% of players were taking something, mm-hmm. some type of supplement. doesn't have to be taking something, taking ingesting some type of pills, whether it be, you know, things to keep you awake at night, anything. So it's it's... I find it difficult to to try and, as we've discussed before, to be all over players. It's a choice, and of course, I mean, I think we would love all of our athletes to be clean. That's 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 the world that we live in. We want everyone to be clean, and we want everyone to do things the right way. 
but the reality says that that didn't happen. And I can't say that, you know, McGriff was a was an idiot not to or was, you know, or that he should have. I mean, he did what he did, what he thought was he was comfortable with. And again, I will go to the I will continue to say this to the hogs end of this of this discussion that at the time baseball did nothing about it. So it was illegal. So whatever people wanted to put in their bodies was their choice. And again, and you've made that point before, and you and I disagree on that one, but that's okay, because that is a secondary, for this discussion, I think that's a secondary part of this. The question becomes, if we are now willing, if a lot of people apparently are willing to overlook that, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, it has been an, an, an issue up until now, because a lot of these guys, like Barry Bonds, should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. Roger Clemens, too. So clearly it had some impact on the voting, maybe a lot of impact. But if that's the case and people are now willing to overlook it, Fred McGriff probably could have made a lot more money. He could have hit a lot more home runs. He could be in the Hall of Fame if he had just said, look, everyone else is doing it, so I should do it too. Like, why be, I I happen to think that he did the right thing, but why be the beacon of uprightness if everyone around you is cheating? Well, he could always say that my numbers stand up for the, for for themselves, and I played in an era where eighty five, you know, possibly eighty percent of all players took something, and 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 if my numbers don't stand up to be in the Hall of Fame, and the voters aren't either, you know, intelligent enough to look, you know, beyond the numbers and look at what kind of man he was and what kind of players he was that he was during his day, well, then you know, I I don't know what else he could have done. That's a personal choice that Phil, Fred McGriff made because. Uh, you're right. Maybe his pl- his play would have been enhanced somehow, or he would have been a better hitter, or hit more home runs. I mean, I'm not an ex a doctor, so I don't know exactly what you know the- those drugs do exactly to- in terms of your performance. But uh, that's a personal choice he made, and you got to live with it, right? I mean, just as we you- we could say that a guy like uh, Rafael Palmero, whose numbers would put him in uh, the Hall of Fame in a second. Yep. In a first ballot, absolutely. You know what's but stunning? He made a choice and he stuck by it and he's going to have to pay live for it. Live for it. I mean, he, he's not getting in. What is stunning about the five, see, 500 home runs used to be a, almost essentially a guarantee. You hit 500 home runs, you're going into the Hall of Fame. The list of the 500 home run club now has become very, very complicated. Number one on the list, Barry Bonds, not in the Hall of Fame, and we know why. Number two, Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth. A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez, number four, not in the Hall of Fame. We know why. Actually, well, he's not eligible yet, but will be. Willie Mays, Ken Griffey, in. The only active player with 500 is Albert Pujols. He has 614. Jim Tomei. Now, I don't think, was Jim Tomei ever rumored to be on anything? I don't think so. I don't recall ever hearing his name tied into this. Uh, no, but it was, is Jim Tomei a good enough player? And, no, and, and, and he's, he's the one it, guy. He's the one he's, guy here that you go, okay, he was just a home run hitter. He did nothing else. Yeah, and I mean, and I think that's where the intelligence of the voters have to come in and, and, and really assess the situation as towards, you know, guys like him and McGriff and, I mean, that were arguably clean. And do their numbers stack up against the rest of what that class should represent? And I think the voters, you know, who many of them have been around for a long time and know the sport very, very well, and if there's a consideration for a guy like Fred McGriff, well, then the voters should be smart enough to look through the fact of what was going on at the time with, you know, people ingesting stuff, illegal stuff and legal stuff at time, and look and say, okay, you know what, that was a player that played in that era, and he put up monstrous numbers. He should be in. There are 27 guys in Major League history who have hit 500 home runs or more. Nine of them are guys who have had either 
drug tests, positive drug tests, or uh, rumors or allegations of drugs around them. And again, it makes it a very complicated thing, but I, I go back and Fred McGriff is someone clearly that a lot of Blue Jays fans have a great affinity for because they remember him playing for the Jays. Man, I look at him and I think if, if you take out the guys who were clearly on the stuff, it makes his 493. Because some of the guys who are on the stuff are into the 700s and the late 600s. You take those guys off the list. It's a much, much shorter list. And those 493 sure look a lot more impressive. You know, Scott, I'm going to take it a stress. I mean, and this is always sort of a, a test that I was thought, uh, that I was kind of taught. And, and I don't know. And I think everyone maybe thinks differently. But at any time during the career of Fred McGriff, and I hate to keep picking on this guy here, did you think he was a Hall of Famer? He was not the guy that you look at and you go, he is absolutely the best player in every single game he played. No. But there are guys, and I, I look, I will, I'll take the other side of it. There are players that are very good, maybe not the best player in the game, but very good for a very long time, and I think there is grounds to be a Hall of Famer in that category. I, I put Dave Andertruck into that one. Dave Andertruck was never the best player in the NHL. But he played at such a high level for such a long time that even though he wasn't the guy who was the best player, that's another entry point to me, another entryway into a Hall of Fame. And that's how I see Fred McGriff. He's a guy who was just really, really, really good for a really long time. You know, and I, I kind of disagree with Andrew Chuck, and this is why it angered me so long, for so long, that why he wasn't in. Because I, I think there were times throughout his career where I did think he was a Hall of Fame player, a guy that scored 50 goals twice in an era where it was tough to I mean, because the 50-goal the, the scoring spree kind of started to fall off when he did that in the early 90s. And on top of that, his brilliance on the power play, I mean, that's a part of hockey. That's a very crucial part of the sport, and he was forever dominant in that area of the game. Yeah, the issue with him was that his when you watched highlights of Dave Anderchuk, he never was the guy who went end-to-end and deke through everybody. He was highly productive for a very, very, very long time, but you never watched him and went, wow. And that's that, to me, again, going back to a guy like Fred McGriff, you would say wow sometimes because he. I remember the one of the first times the Jays ever went to Yankee Stadium, he hit a ball into the upper deck and threw a tunnel that was about seven miles away. <laughs> um, there were times, but more often than not, he was just very consistent, very steady, great defensively. And you say, okay, you know what? You do that for long enough, you should get some serious consideration. And so, anyway, I just as I say, if you take out the guys like McGuire and Sosa and Palmero and Manny Ramirez and A-Rod and Barry Bonds, and you whittle down what numbers their home runs would be without stuff, again, I think suddenly Fred McGriff's numbers look a whole lot more impressive, and he probably gets a lot more consideration. Yeah, maybe so. I just, I just, I don't know. I just, in my time of watching him, I always thought he was a real good player. I just think a Hall of Fame is the ultimate player. And I just don't know as much as I love him. And then you've got, the, as you said, the affinity for him as a Blue Jay. And he's got some pretty good numbers at the, you know, when his career was all wrapped up. I just don't know if I ever looked at him and thought, wow, that guy is, you know, in a class by himself. Let us, we got a couple minutes left here. I want to jump to one different topic that, um, that is literally, in my mind, this is literally unquestionably the sports story of the year. And there have been a bunch of good sports stories this year, but could you please explain to me 
How in the world the Vegas Golden Knights are the second place team in the NHL? <laughs> Boy, the NHL's got to really love this, right? I mean, this is the way um, you know sold out arenas in 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 Las Vegas. The attention they're getting, you know, nationally has been incredible. Uh, I think this is whoever the next franchise is in the National Hockey League, and I am going to guess that Seattle they're going to be really happy because even though we're going to have to fork up $650 million as Vegas have to, had to set up, you know, set up uh, $500 million for their franchise, the NHL have done it right in the expansion draft. For years and years, teams like Columbus, uh, San Jose, Anaheim, Ottawa suffered because you got the bottom of the barrel. But the way they reformed the, the, the protection laws for teams when it came up to the expansion draft – Teams, Vegas got fantastic players. Jonathan Marchessault scored 30 goals for the Florida Panthers last year, and for whatever reason, because the Panthers aren't going to the playoffs this year, they left him um, they left him unprotected. Yeah, they might want that done. They might want to do over with that one. <laughs> you know, because he's their leading scorer right now, and he's missed the games. I think he missed 10 games with injuries. And you go, I mean, James Neal, you know, a guy definitely coming to the other side of his career. But you know what? Scored the girl. He he was the team. He was the guy that got the team off on on the right foot. And certainly in their first ten games of the year, he was scoring at an unbelievable pace. So I, I it, how is it happening? It's because they changed the expansion draft and made it viable for teams to compete. A guy a guy like Gallant. I mean, that was a good coach. I mean, he coached Columbus and he coached Florida. And people say when he got canned in Florida that it was a, it was a total scam. So they have good coaching. McPhee's a good general manager, proven general manager, and they've got good players that, you know, what Mark Andre Fleury injured, but still, you know, uh, now back now and healthy. So and I'm they- I'm with you on all that stuff, and yet even with that, there is magic and pixie dust and something else for an expansion team. I don't care how good the players were you got to choose to be second in the... Look, we're talking this year, Bob, about how excited Maple Leaf fans are about the quality of their players and how much better their team is, and they are five spots in the standings behind Vegas. <laughs> it is. It's, it's stunning. It's, it's a stunning story, but I'm sure the National Hockey League love this. And let me throw you a quick bone. Yes. Can you imagine the smile on Gary Bettman's face if the Western Conference Final features the Nashville Predators and the Vegas Golden Knights? Maybe the only two arenas in the league that wouldn't boo him. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Uh, But here, you know who, you've talked a lot about who loves this, and sure, Vegas loves it, and the NHL, I agree with you, they love it, and the broadcasters love it because the last thing they wanted was another crappy team out in the desert like Arizona Coyotes. You know who hates this? You know who's going to hate this? Whoever gets picked to be the general manager of the Seattle team. Because the expectation now is you should be able to go through the residue of whatever teams leave and yep. put together a really, really competitive team. And I think this is a once-in-a-lifetime situation. I think Seattle's going to be like probably a lot closer to every other expansion team. And that GM is going to sit there and go, why do I? Why am I following that act? <laughs> I will say this, though, Scott, and, and, and this is someone reminded me the other day because I was kind of going on about the Knights the other day, too, and their successes. And it's like... And I had to be reminded of one thing, that hockey is an interesting sport, that sometimes in the second half, after that all-star break, things start to happen. But they've certainly 
backloaded themselves with enough points right now to certainly put themselves in a postseason situation. But you know, a lot of times in that second half, and the Pittsburgh Penguins are a good example of that, the, lot, the way they've played the last couple of years, kind of just going through the motions for the first half of the season, and then they, uh, through February, March, and April, just crank it up. Sir, thank you for your time. Oh. Hey, have a Merry Christmas, Bubba. I wish you Merry Christmas, your listeners Merry Christmas. And my one wish is that I will start choosing the song. <laughs> well, we may give you control of the uh, of the DJing after this. Bubba O'Neill from CHCA, thanks for doing this. Oh, it was a pleasure, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.